Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We need your support. There are thousands of you listening. You're sharing, you're commenting online and you're you know sharing it around to your friends and your mates and you're rating, reviewing and doing all those things and it's lovely to see. But we have no ads, we have no sponsors, we have no corporate backers or donors. We're not part of any of the corporate pod- podcast platforms that are churning out, uh, how do I put this politely? A lot of politically safe and manufactured crap. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure we keep talking to people who we want to speak to and we don't have to pull punches and worry about editorial control. The only way we can continue to do that is with your support. How you do that is you click the link at the top of the podcast that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise Join us for a month. See if you think getting access to our entire back catalogue of over 1,200 podcasts in one consolidated feed, including lots of exclusives, all plea free is worth the price of a fancy cup of coffee and maybe a scone once a month. You'll be giving yourself the treat of not having to listen to me and you'll be helping us keep going. I'm going to stop rabbiting on and let you get to the podcast now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Enjoy the pod. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joined the podcast today by my brother all the way from Oz. Um, Tony was late this morning. Tony's here as well. The Apologies, of Reboot yeah. Republic. And he's just, you had to get the dig in that I'm like, because Rory, I always explain to people, I'm generally about 10 minutes early and I do the small talk and I say, don't worry, Rory will be along when he's along because he's, he's probably got one of 17 children attached to him that he's trying to put aside. But now, anyway, look, this is, this is your, delighted you got your dig in, Rory. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say I'm quite 10 minutes late now, but consistently two or three minutes late. <laughs> yes, con- without con- a doubt. Consistency is, 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 is something you can hang your hat on, though. Well, right? see, I'm very reliable reliably late yeah exactly yeah listen decky how are you very good rory very good tony good to be here good to be joining you all the all the way from uh australia so my brother lives in australia has been living there many many years um and we're going to have a chat today about... i just want to ask what's the temperature there right now oh yeah cool uh it's finally beginning to change i'm in brisbane so it's subtropics here but i mm. reckon it's still 26 degrees oh. we're approaching eight o'clock in the evening um so lads i'm over the heat i'm looking forward to april when the temperature starts dropping and the humidity starts giving up a bit but yeah 26 degrees right now yeah no I'd, I'd I'd kill for it now I'm sitting here in a jumper and a jacket Rory's sitting wraps, wrapped in fleeces you know <laughs> I am it's down to three degrees here and it's yeah. that uh, you'll remember it well Decky when Patrick's Day is on its way and you get that cold blast again Sean Riach that's it that, that, sh- we're too early for the Sean Riach the Sean Riach comes in May yeah 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 but you always get no doubt for the day for the parades um I mean, and do you get any parade in Brisbane, Dean? We could do. I'll have to put my hand up and admit I wasn't paying attention this year. It may have been last <laughs> Saturday. Oftentimes it's the weekend before, so I may have missed the boat there and I'll have to check out. Uh, dead right, dead trouble. right though. Utter <laughs> nonsense, utter nonsense. And speaking of which, we have our government ministers uh, flitting all over the world celebrating Ireland while they're about to... Uh, Allow I put in place a policy which is going to lead to thousands of families and children be evicted. Tony, a quick word before you go on the eviction ban. Um, 
again, you know, I, I think the pressure is growing on them. There seems to be they really have doubled down in terms of their insistence that they're not going to evict it. But I think they're completely disconnected this week from any sense of what's going on here because they're clearly not in the country. Um, but I, I've been quite uh, actually feel a bit hopeful in terms of the public reaction. I think it's been very, very strong. Um, and I am hoping that the uh, Sinn Féin bill next week will actually force um, them to reverse it. I'm worried, though. In, OK, I am hopeful, but I'm also kind of disappointed that here we are again. And yet another Irish solution is to have people carry out their play out their personal traumas and problems in, in the media in order for the state to act. And this is yeah. where we are yet again. We're having this yeah. idea where people are going to have to come on like we've been doing for a long time, Rory. Let's tell the truth. We've had people saying, you know, I'm facing this eviction. I'm going through this sort of experience. Like I spoke to um, that the rapper Tommy Katie, 15 years on the streets. The, his life's turned changed. Ch- turned around by getting assisted living. Get He's in the housing first policy. His entire life t- turned around. And you're just thinking, my God, how bad are we at this? 15 years that, of, of living in tents and squats and on, you know, on and cardboard beds. Uh, and, and it's the scale of it now. And of mm. course, it's not just people who will be evicted into homelessness, but it is teachers who are going to go as, you know, reported yeah. down in down in Limerick, teachers going, I can't afford to live here. I'm emigrating to Australia and we know they are. And it's well, it's um can I push I, in and say one thing that was really troubling, and this is why I think we we might we might be misreading the government. The minister Roderick O'Gorman was on talking about it, and he one of the points he made on the week in politics was that they're going to provide additional emergency beds. That's a crazy situation where you're turning around saying the win is we're going to have more emergency beds as yeah. opposed to you know people having homes or or stable secure housing because we know rory some emergency beds in, in dublin most nights can be just yoga bloody mats rolled out that's yeah, what they can be yeah, yeah. no and, and i think that um i think that the scale of trauma that they're going to cause by this is like nothing we've seen um it is going on it's going on ongoing and has been for years but this is going to bring it to another level and i do think that they're making a massive massive mistake and we've asked listeners already and, and if you can if you haven't done so sign the petition mm. it's on uplift uh, to keep the the eviction ban in place you can go over to my uplift um and you just Google keep the eviction ban in place and we'll put the link to this podcast as well. Sign the petition. It all helps. Um, and we will be sending that to the, the government before the end of the month. Um, and hopefully, as I said, we can change that. I know raise the roof for planning a protest as well um, outside the doll. So there is going to be action on this and, and it will be continued. Um, and I am and we will be talking to others in the coming days and weeks in terms of those who are actually facing um, eviction to hear their stories because that is so important listen Tony thanks so much for that no worries and, and, uh, and we'll be talking on, on it soon yeah uh, no bring, doubt. The, bring the brother in now cheers <laughs> I'll say one thing just to pick up on that and you made kind of a, a jest remark that people will be emigrating to Australia but there's a housing crisis over here too and I know that's not going to be the top of, of our conversation but the similarities are shocking um, right. And I was speaking to a friend on the weekend who works for a council, a good job in a local government council, um, and he can't afford to live in the community where he's employed. So he He drives 40 minutes. And that's down the coastline. It is an attractive tourist area. People, it's Byron Bay, people would know, and that is one of the premier tourists, you know, but so well-paid local government employees can't afford to live in that community. 
It's not just one. I was actually, our fam, we considered, or I was offered an opportunity for another local government up the coast, up the opposite way. One of the primary reasons was I looked at what they could offer and I could not afford to take that and live in that community. I would have to be commuting from outside the community. So, you know, it's funny, the similarities, and it's not funny. Um, well, it's, it, it's, it, it's interesting that, yeah, and I, we were talking about this over and back in our um, snippets of conversations that we managed to catch in between uh, whenever I return your calls. And um, <laughs> that was our joke, isn't it? Um, if you want to talk to Rory, that's what I was saying. Oh, my God, I'm going to reach a point where if you want to talk to Rory uh, by, with my siblings, it's like a, a podcast. Better... That's where I can have a decent conversation. <laughs> Well, it's the only time you see the weekends. You're just literally have kids hanging out your ears, so you can't have a conversation, or you're too wrecked at the end of the day, and that's the problem. Um, and it's also the problem of um, our times don't synchronize. We're the times, opposite ends yeah. of the hour, so when I'm energetic and ready for a call, it's the end of the day for you, and same vice yeah. versa. So that is, even though to be an immigrant way over here, like our ability to communicate and stay stay in touch is so much better than what it was a generation ago. You know? Yeah like yeah yeah but it's interesting i was talking to i just did a podcast there last week with uh, a young man from a uh, teacher who's emigrated from uh, he was connemara he was living in dublin and basically just couldn't afford to save while uh, having to cover the rents as so we moved back home for a few months and now he's emigrated to australia but he was we were talking about that kind of emotional impact of leaving and he mentioned that in terms of the time difference and trying to have conversations with people you know that it's just it is different and it's different than america because america is more in line in terms of the states um and canada time-wise whereas australia it's it's and it's just so far as well it's so far yeah i was thinking like how i know covid was in between but was it four years or five years since we'd seen each other it was four plus um i remember having the we had a big debate on the way back from the airport when I picked you yourself and the kids and uh, Verna, your wife, up from the, the airport. And we had a big discussion. Was it four or five years? But yeah, a long I mean, time. We, it was a long time. We were very fortunate to get back. I mean, COVID was hard on a lot of people who weren't um, weren't used to not getting home more regularly. Mm. You know, um, the, the cost is huge. But I suppose I heard of people different migrants in Australia who couldn't get home to dying parents and stuff like that. So we were yeah. fortunate that we didn't experience that, but acknowledge um, it's great that, I mean, Aust- Australia had its closed borders for a long time, Yeah, um, which is another different story. Um, yeah. But it, it's good that the borders are open. We can travel again. Yeah. I want to bring you back to the housing crisis, actually, a, li- a little bit, because we had been in touch uh, and it was me that made the meandering comment about not being in touch. Um, and we started to talk about the immigrant experience and, and the relationship. But the thing of you had reflected on me that was about New Zealand. But I have also and you sent me snippets of, of news clippings from Australia as well, that there is a housing crisis going on in Australia and New Zealand that has very similar parallels to what's happening here in Ireland. And you were saying, that, you know, it's funny and it is kind of funny going oh, cheapers. Like, is it like everywhere then? And of course, I know that both New Zealand and Australia have very different histories in terms of Ireland and obviously, but also in many ways did follow similar policies kind of of neoliberalism of reducing 
or not really ever properly investing in social housing. As far as I know, they have much less social housing than we would have even here. Um, but very much followed that kind of market, people buying property as an investment over the last 20 years, the emergence of generation rent, um, and not building social housing and kind of turning it into this financial asset. So I, I think that would explain why there are similarities and probably as well the the huge increase of things like Airbnb, which would be very similar, Australia, New Zealand, quite touristy places like Ireland as well, those sort of things. And this idea of a certain of the boomer generation that uh, we, you know, who, who've done well, we can buy multiple properties and that's our investment income and not thinking, well, someone has to pay that investment and it could be your children, you know, in terms of the, the income as, yeah. as a rent. I don't know. Do, do, I, do they, is that things it, you've seen, or you know? Yes, 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 yes. You know, and I'm, you know, absolutely haven't got my finger on top of the housing crisis here. But I am someone who is a migrant into the country, so could absolutely, first of all, feel the boomer generation. You yeah. know, that parental support, I would say, is so critical for getting your first foot on the step in the housing market here in this country. And those that have that support are ten steps ahead. Yeah. Um. The the prices have been crazy in the last two or three years. Um, and I was very fortunate to get on the housing ladder, you know, two years ago. It might be almost three years ago now. And it, sure, of course, we thought we were coming in on a high and it broke our back to try and get in. Yeah. Um, sure, the housing prices, once we got in, it just kept going up for yeah. two years. And Rory, like listening to some of the chapters in your book, and I'm listening to it over reading it yeah um, but the inflation rate again so if i was reading it you can benchmark better because you're quoting the figures but the the increase in it was astronomical here yeah um my house doubled in value in two years in two years in two years basically doubled in value yeah it's gone back down again since yeah um you know but that you know so it's just incomprehensible um, and now it's it's flipped. So housing prices have slid down at least um, a half of that gain. Um, right. But there's the, the rental crisis. And I was there was an evening news report, and I swear I'd been listening to a chapter of your book where you had talked about the vulture capitalists moving in and buying yeah. and building to rent. And guess what they were announcing on the evening news in Australia? What? They, they were announcing the solution to the housing crisis and it was an academic speaking and he was encouraging that they needed investors to build to rent and they had the first investor scheme in brisbane over an area and it was the first one of investor-led build to let um and that no! being introduced <laughs> as the housing solution and it was just uncanny like it was you swear they were reading your book but had misread it and were adopting <laughs> the strategy <laughs> Or maybe didn't so, read it, and because uh, um, it's and, and then uh, you were announcing that you have your your petition right now. I, I know that's against uh, the freeze against evictions. Yeah, but I, I did try and do a quick Google to get some facts and figures. I didn't actually land on any good ones. But what did I land on? The Green well, Party are have a similar petition challenging yeah, the this government. This is the Green Party in Australia. Crisis. The Green Party in Australia. Yeah, yeah um, have a similar but, petition to. You know, position taking on the government to fix the housing crisis and challenging that that market-based approach is not the solution. And, you know, there's underinvestment and it's got to be direct government investment. Yeah. Um. So, again, yeah, it is interesting. 
and you know probably the reflection back to Ireland is is not that you can look externally to try and find solutions when these are you know on the ground people dealing with it, but there is an element of what's the international community of practice of people like yourself linking up and and um looking for those shared solutions but also sharing the solutions that are emerging in Ireland yeah. um, and, of and, course- and as I yeah. No, and the lessons of of what not to do and what went and what has gone wrong, and you know, I that's the way I went. No, in terms as you said, the the institutional investors there, um, and I was at a conference there recently, um, where there was someone from Australia presenting, um, and they were presenting the bill to rent as as kind of the key way forward, a key development, and it's just like as I said, you know, as you said, they read my book, but I was going to say that. I, I do get from time to time uh, real estate investors and uh, contacting me going, uh, would you give me some advice, please? And because they understand that I know the housing market and the housing system and what's going on and that actually you would be surprised how many of uh, these people, unfortunately, draw on my analysis to support their investments. And so they're like, oh, yeah, he's analyzing that there's this huge, you know, deficit in rental stock therefore that's where we should invest and i'm going oh no it's the wrong but it it that is mad that australia is um it is literally mad that they're going down that road because because of course all that does is further commodify housing and further you know we've seen here the evidence of them been here for you know almost eight years now is all they've done is pushed up rents you know, just and they're now renting properties at and all the rest of the landlord market just ups their rents to to match theirs because they can see what they're renting for. So the the economists argue, you know, the more supply will bring down um prices, but in actual fact, when you have a certain type of supply like that, it actually uh, goes counter to that and drags up rents. Um, but listen, in, in that's really interesting, and it is definitely something that I'd like to talk to you again about. Um, and we'll um, we'll be expecting great research for the next one. <laughs> but but if we pivot, and I lead the pivot here, you're almost there into some water and sanitation type topics. And yeah. I have two thoughts of, of pivoting. First of all, I think water and sanitation got one line in your book. Yeah. So we, we'll have to challenge it. So we bring water and sanitation and access to those human rights. Well, are better great, co- and you'll have to in your go. sequel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the other thought of linking it is floods and climate change. Yes. Um, yeah. And that is something that, again, hit my household here um, and hit um, homes and houses and house prices across uh, east coast of Australia yeah. through La Nina last year. Um, we've had a triple La Nina, which is only the second time on record that you had three years in a row. Explain and what that La is Ni- just for listeners who mightn't be aware. Yeah, so La Nina is, it's the opposite of the os- El Nino oscillation. We, we, we may have heard of El, El Nino, which is, it's the Southern Ocean oscillation. And when it, it basically, it's the ocean current. And it's yeah. one, La Nina is when it's warming on the Australian edge. And that warming coming into the Australian East coast dumps more rain. And right. El Nino is the reverse when it heats over on the South American West Coast and brings rains and torrential floods to uh, the dry lands of Peru. So it is, uh, it's a seven, well, it's typically a seven year oscillation. Um, but it's with climate change, you know, the thinking is the energy, there's more energy in the system. So the oscillation 
is not necessarily happening faster, but it is is more severe when it does swing into the La Nina or into the El, El Nino. El Nino. And in Australia, so we were, it, w- it was a La Nina phase and we had three years of unprecedented floods. Um, and that had come on the back of uh, a very extreme drought. Um, and I'm going to pivot two ways. We can go back to, to how that impacts on housing and, and insurance on housing. But also, I will go back to the landing in Australia. Um, coming from an agricultural background in Ireland, working in environmental management, landscape management, those type of issues. Um, Australia is different. The climate cycle here is just different to our understanding of it back in Western Europe. And there's a long legacy of our settler mentality, trying to impose our understanding of climate and climate cycles in agriculture onto the Australian system. And I'm living here a decade and I read about it and understood it, but hadn't lived it, hadn't lived this cycle. And so this was the first time really living it in the extremes. Um, And it brings you to recognize really is different here. We don't have the four month seasonal cycle. Yes, that happens. But from what I saw over the last three years is this El Nino seven-year cycle is far more influential on on natural systems and therefore our ability to produce food, our ability to provide water and sanitation, water, particularly water security and the impacts of floods, they're far more drastic than that annual seasonal variation. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that's a mind shift that European settlers have been very slow to learn and repeatedly make the same mistakes as new waves of migrants have come. And our indigenous brothers and sisters here have been banging their heads for 200 years, telling you your Western science and how you apply your Western science doesn't cut it here. Yeah, that's Um, fascinating. Yeah. 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 There's multiple pivots we could make and we'll continue to do them slide all over the place. Um, And the just on the, the climate change one is really interesting and climate change and housing. And maybe you talk a little bit because, you know, your house was flooded. Um, and, you know, talk a little bit about that, because that is something that people are going to experience more and more. And people are experiencing it in Ireland increasingly. And it does link climate change and housing directly and both in terms of how we build resilience, but also the necessity to try and respond at a you know systemic level to try and avoid climate catastrophe but um i don't know if you want to, i didn't ask you before do you want to talk about it or not but like sure 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 um and i can take a step back and acknowledge that you know before i came to australia so i'm out of ireland 20 years um there was a little bit it's 20 years i think so bones a half of my life the first 10 years were southeast asia um philippines indonesia and there i I've and done just explain quite a to lot listeners, of, yeah, what, what you were working at. You weren't like... Um, that, that, that was a lot of international out. development work. Um, <laughs> yeah, people, international uh, development. People, and, uh, uh, and so I started in local government in Ireland, conservation type work. Um, and then in, I went... In, in the, with the hill farmers in South Kerry. With the hill farmers in South Kerry, having Jackie yeah. Healy Ray calling me on my very first mobile phone, telling me that such and such farmer is all right. He's not causing any problems. You did um, not have Jackie Healy Ray calling you. 
I did, I did, because I walked into a farmyard and I was in the water pollution section in Kerry County Council. And uh, there was a farmer telling me there's no slurry coming out of this yard. And I, <laughs> I, I had to explain him that I came from a farm and I know how slurry flows <laughs> and it tends to flow downhill. And he was trying to lead me over here. And I was I think think we should walk over here. Um, and sure, of course, there was slurry flowing out through a, a drain down into a stream. Um, and he and I had a good chat with the farmer and yeah, just say we'll try and work together to find a solution. But I wasn't five minutes down the road when I had Jackie Healy on the phone telling me I didn't need to go back to that farmyard. There's no no problems in that farmyard. You're um, joking. He was telling you, don't go back. There's no problems literally. there. <laughs> My God, that, that's... Yeah. Oh, stop. It's, it's a certain type of... Um, Irish politician and Irish politics and we all it was referred to as the clientelism you know the this local accessibility literally you could get your elected representative to ring up an environmental health officer and say don't go such and such a place and um interest straight away the reflections of the complete disregard for the state itself and its function and for not just environment but interesting um Thankfully, we, we've moved a bit away from that, but it's still there. That's a fascinating story. That That's quite something. I did not know Jackie Healy Ray rang you. When you first had your mobile, your first ever call on your mobile phone. Uh, not first call, but I'm pretty sure it was my first mobile phone. You know, uh, yeah, council yeah. issued mobile phone. Yeah. Um, But you, you were asking me about floods, but I'm, I might as well go back another step and I'll just talk about my pathway into international development because there's a nice little linkage there and back to our father. Yeah. Um, go. Where and it was one of the key lessons that I later reflected on, and it's what kind of guided me in my work and still guide does guide me as a principal. And it's back to that farmer as well. So when I landed in Kerry County Council, uh, John or Dad would often give me a call um, around, and we'd have a bit of a chat, and he'd be wondering what I was up to. But one day he asked, he asked Dick, "Why are you doing it?" Because I was in the water pollution office. Yeah. And if you recall, dad was prosecuted or taken to court for a burst slurry pit. Yeah. I, I don't remember um, that, but yeah, I really yeah, yeah. I do remember I do remember something happening. Yeah. Yeah. So so we had an earth bank slurry pit, you know, and it yeah. burst on a stormy night, back to our flood tone. Um and a councillor or no a, um a council worker who was an en- well, dad's interpretation, he was an engineer from Dublin who had no understanding of context, just needed a a prosecution, a KPI. Yeah. Um, so he was taken in and John was always frustrated. John, or dad, was always frustrated. So he asked me, Dick, what are you doing? Don't us small farmers have enough issues yeah. without people like you coming in, harassing us in the farmyard? Yeah. And it was a cold moment on the phone. And I just... It just pivoted in my thought and said, Dad, isn't it much better that someone like me, who is an understanding of context and an understanding of, of the pain small farmers can feel, is walking into the farmyard and working with the farmer to find solutions rather than someone who's co- walking in and it doesn't have any understanding of context. And I remember John just taking a big sigh and he went, Agreed. <laughs> and he supported me in, in that work from then on but I, that's, I took that's, that that's quite I something took that thinking of being able to walk in the other person's shoes and yeah. that's what I took into the international development space and I went over the Philippines and worked and constantly recognized that I was an outsider in those contexts 
So I could have strong opinions about different issues, but it wasn't for me to impose those opinions, but it was to listen and try and understand and facilitate conversations. And in the Philippines, I started the journey in very much land conservation, land management type works, you know, environmental conservation. But when you're over there and typhoons hit, you just can't help but pivot into basic needs, provision yeah. of water and sanitation and emergency responses to floods. So that's how I started working in floods and, and working with organizations responding to typhoons and disasters. And really starting to understand, you know, early days, understanding the, the climate impacts and being able to forecast and understand the likely impacts from floods. But there's one thing to work in it professionally. There's another thing when it impacts your home. Yeah. And that was your question. You know, how, how does it feel when you're impacted? And it, it did absolutely sharpen your thinking about social resilience Um and the psychological impacts on you and your family, your confidence in that home. Um, and if I talk through some of those, um, not in any particular order, but the night of the flood, um, we are in a floodplain here. And um, so the house is on quite a steep slope. This mm. down here is actually an, an under, undercroft where I am. The main part of the house is upstairs. This undercroft was built in later. It actually wouldn't have planning approval down here because it's under the flood level. Okay. Um, so the floods were coming up the back garden. Um, but what actually happened because of the the intensity of the rain, our roof actually collapsed in from the top. Yeah. So we were washing it coming in from the bottom, but it came in from the top. Um, but at that point, we evacuated. Our neighbors below, two houses below, had already evacuated. Um, but we evacuated 100 meters up the road. It's a steep hill. So we're just able to run up the hill. And this is the first thing. We had community, we had community support around us. So yeah. we just went up to another migrant's family, 100 meters up the road, slept in their house. In the middle of the night, we actually, I came down with your man from there and we started doing repairs, checking the electricity, turn out. So, so to me, they're elements of social resilience that you have community around you and you can respond. I can compare that to lots of examples in other places. And even down New South Wales, where the floods were actually more severe, where that social resilience broke down and people weren't able to help themselves. The next morning, I had friends coming over and doing the tiles on the roof. So again, that was social resilience, the networks around me that I was able to tap into. Then financial resilience, I actually didn't have flood cover on the house. Yeah. So because it's double the price of the, of the insurance premium. Um, I remember that and the worry about that and, and the so stress that was stressing my mind. Yeah. Um, because actually no one else in the family knew that I actually yeah. didn't have the cover on the house. Yeah. Um so we got away lucky because it wasn't flood that came in. It was storm damage. So we actually got it covered. So there's financial resilience, you know, that the insurance did cover us. Um a financial look see- in a way, as you say. Yeah, yeah, look, um, but I could see households down the road from us who clearly didn't have insurance, you know, and those households haven't recovered. Um, And Brisbane City Council are now looking at, because a bunch of these floodplains should have never been built in, Mm. right? Um, And so they're looking at buyback for some of the houses to remove it out of um, 
use as as a home and convert oh. it into a more suitable use. Okay. Um, and that's a concept which is actually, it comes from the Dutch and it's called making space for the river because historically we believe that if you dam and dike up the river and channel it faster, you can rush it out to sea. But that only increases the risk of further impacts downstream because at some stage, particularly under you know future climate scenarios, whatever dike, whatever bank we build, it's likely it will be breached. And that bank or dike or flood protection creates a false sense of security, which typically drives us to invest in infrastructure and housing in behind it. But you're only yeah. increasing that risk. Um, so the par- an emerging paradigm is to make space for the river and get people back out of the floodplain and allow the, the river the pulse move down through the catchment and where it's moving onto the floodplain, that's the natural process. And guess what? Our indigenous brothers and sisters here, they're telling us, told you so. Really? Yeah. When, when we, just to, to explain to listeners that you work um, in water water management um, at the moment with um, local, well, it's like, it's, it's like our equivalent to Irish water, would that be right? Um, Correct. And Correct. your kind of role is working with the indigenous uh, Aborigine communities um, part of it and engaging them because they're essentially where the water sources are. Um, so the you, you're having lots of conversations with them around their historical approach to water and climate and your reflections here are already fascinating, challenging our whole um, the need to decolonize our Western science and everything to understand actually and see that their understanding of, as you're saying, nature of everything is often much, much better, deeper than ours. Yep. Um, and so when, when I pivot out of the international focus, absolutely, I try, I try to find what's going to be the hook to keep me interested locally. Yeah. I know the, the role with the local uh, equivalent of Irish water, and we can backstory that a little bit if you want to compare with the Irish water reforms and watching that from afar. But um yeah, this is, it's around stewardship of a resource. So there is, um, and there's a whole story between, behind land rights of First Nation people. And they have, they secured land rights only Just explain, because not everyone might be, you know, we, we hear different terms. What is First Nation? And just explain that concept. Yeah. So First Nations, um, it, that would be a generic term aligned with indigenous people, which is used like in Canada, New Zealand, and it is those people that were there first, the f- first people to arrive there before the more modern waves of settlement. And that's yeah. so it's, in Australia, um, it's the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So there's a differentiation of the two types of first people in australia and um, and the aboriginal are the mainland um first nations people but the torres strait islanders is right up by papua new guinea and they are melanesian people um but both those peoples are recognized as the first nations of australia and so for australia everyone would probably be familiar with the 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 aboriginal flag with the black at the top the red at the bottom and the yellow sun in the middle. Um, but there's also uh, a Torres Strait Islander flag, which represents that nation people. Okay. Um, okay. Very interesting. So beautiful, be- beautiful yeah. diversity and complexity. You know, yeah. sometimes Australia is considered the new country, 
but I go over to an island where there's First Nations that we collaborate and work with. And this it's a small sand system island. And they can trace back habitation and continual community, you know, habitation on this island, 20 plus thousand years. Carbon dating is pushing it back close to 45,000. And then people will refer to, oh, you're from the old Ireland, the old country. And I go, yeah, but our habitation in Ireland only goes back to the last ice age. Is it 9,000 years? So Possibly. You know? Uh, you know, my my historical <laughs> go back there. I'm well, sure well, it is. It's around nine. I, I can't, might be yeah. it might be seven, eight, but it's something like that. Yeah. Um. And so the Aboriginal communities here have much longer continuity of civilization. Um. And yet, there's these perceptions that Australia, you know, is is young, and it's it's Australia still learning its identity, yeah. um, and how to accept and embrace that much richer, deeper. Um, knowledge system and it's really feeling like there's momentum now um, around treaty so Australia um, the First Nations it was never lost, it was never ceded so it was never given over to those British settlers, it was taken and they still don't have a treaty to recognise the First Nations people and their rights and how those rights have been taken away so that that's a huge story, a huge backstory, and I'll admit I'm you know still learning buckets in that space. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if we jump forward to water rights, yeah. Um, and it's attached to land rights. There was the Marbo case, which was the first Aboriginal parties to take Australia to the High Court to overturn Terra Nullius. So Terra Nullius was the declaration by the British when they claimed Australia. Terra nullius, as in this land had nothing yes. before. Yeah. There was yeah. no governance. So that principle was only turn overturned. <laughs> it's known as the Marble case, and that was 80s, 1980s. Right. Yeah. So that's when the First Nations finally had a recognition that they were here before and had systems and cultures and governance practices um, before the white settlers. And so that act established rights around access to land and it was limited access or limited recognition of rights to water and a lot of those rights to water were just for cultural access and cultural use but what's kind of exciting for the space i'm working in now is there's a movement across australia for the last couple of years to actually go beyond just cultural rights but to recognize the first nations are entitled to economic rights just Mm. as we give economic rights <clears throat> for use of water to Coca-Cola bottling companies, to irrigators. Irrigators is not a huge concept in Ireland, but you know, here it can be critical for agricultural production. Yeah. So whereas in Ireland a lot of our focus, particularly historically, was on water quality and impacting on water quality, quantity and that what is the total allocation? What's the allocation for required for environment? What's the allocation required for urban needs, for um economic needs? And then there was cultural needs, but the cultural needs were really only the right to to continue traditional practice. But what about economic rights for First Nations? So that's what's happening right now. Um, and that's the type of work which is exciting to help facilitate that. Even though I work for like, SEQ Water and the mandated responsibility for SEQ Water's provision of urban water to households. So it's, it's finding a way of, of um, balancing that absolute drinking water need which is a human right, you know, and to sustain 
our, our populations and society, but also making sure there's room and opportunity for First Nations aspirations. Fascinating, fascinating, and, and it's um, yeah, there's it's it's so interesting the the concept of you know the water as a resource and understanding it, and and it's something that I remember we were discussing a little bit around the water charges and um and, and you know we had different discussions, and I do remember that concept being quite core though to a lot of opposition to. The, what was behind the water charges in the sense of was the desire to privatize it and this concept that water is a human right um and it's it's a powerful and important one but also could then go as you're saying going back further where is the source and you know you talk about coca-cola and that we know like there's very large corporations here which just use water you know and there's as far as i'm aware very little you know in terms of monitoring how much are they using the quantification of that um you know, and it's a very, very interesting, important area, you know, the treatment of water. I'm even thinking of the flooding further and climate change and how water is um, managed. And, and you know, the question of my book you were asking about infrastructure, water infrastructure, there was multiple things that I couldn't cover in the book that I wanted to cover more, but time and space. Um, I didn't want to turn it into something that, uh, you know, it just became, you know, so, so giant. But you're right. Water infrastructure is key. Um, to the expansion and continued provision of housing and actually water is one of the, the lack of water infrastructure is the, is one of the impediments to developing more housing um but of course the other part of that is you know there's a big question as well even the existing systems that we have within our urban spaces the ability to for example for example densification or you know bring derelict buildings into use and all that a lot of the infrastructure underneath in terms of water is very, very poor um, and needs to be upgraded. And often that's not considered or, you know, involved as a cost um, as well, which, again, is the valuing of the, the natural resources. But unfortunately, um, brother, we only have so much time um, and we'll have to come back again because I wanted to talk to you in more detail about and more. Yeah, just, you know, in terms of the immigrant experience and that, because there is so many, as I said, Irish now uh, emigrating again, which is is sad and and it's something that is um but obviously you know from your experience as well you know it's it's a positive it's an opportunity there's different sides of looking at it so i'd like to chat about that more but before you go um the big giant run you did you're a bit mad like me in that chasing our ghosts uh through mountains and hills and um so you did an incredible incredible 100 kilometer was it in in New Zealand, hundred kilometers, yeah, hundred yeah, kilometer mountain run, um, and which the only reason I went over there is because I wanted to learn from their water management processes <laughs> and their engagement with their iwi communities. <laughs> I say that in jest, but that was seriously part of it. And I, I'd set up a pile of meetings, but again, whether you can direct it at climate change or not, Typhoon Gabriel hit. Yeah. Um. So we were we were getting out. All my meetings were cancelled because I was speaking with the water authority in Auckland, and so they were in emergency response. I couldn't harass them to understand. Yeah. Yeah. The huge. They're much hit, more hits. progressive. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the run was um awesome and brutal. It was a hundred kilometers. It was an ultramarathon trail run. Um. Yeah, and it was just fifteen hours of being free to either run from your demons or embrace your demons. <laughs> and <laughs> how many did you find along and, the way uh, or how many found you? Um, 
hate to disappoint. It's, it's amazing how you can run for 15 hours and you just think, what was going through my head? Ah, uh, not, not a lot because <laughs> you're working hard, you know? Yeah. So you're working hard on fuel and you're working hard on, on trying to recover while still going. Um, but in a way um, that, that can be I, the joy I, of I re- I, Yeah, no, re- really can, enjoyed it. Yeah, but that could be the joy of those really, really long runs and where you go into that place. It's like doing the marathons as well. I like It's like a form of um, tortured meditation. You know, it's like, you know, you're putting your body through so much that in a way it is like you're, you're, you don't think about anything. Let you go, go to that, that place. You're let, yeah. yeah, you're just being in your body, you know, working and, you know, going through and pushing Here. through. And, um, you know, I think that uh, it's... I think it's, we've lost Rory again. No, so, I'm I'm still here. I reckon. I don't know which one of us died there, jumped off. One of us did, it dropped. Yeah, and, yeah. and un- unfortunately, I have to go bring Erin to the doctor. She's got a bit of a chest infection. So um, the the joys of the, the, the three-year-olds, um, uh, yeah, poor little thing. She's fighting. She's been fighting bravely, but um, I need to go bring her, unfortunately. Listen, you did yeah. amazing on the run, and we'll have to talk about that again as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. Best of luck to Aaron. I will say that the one thing which did strike me on the run was firs bushes. Really? They don't have any? There was had them. Fir, they should not have them in New Zealand. Firs bushes, foxgloves, and, and all invasive species from our from UK or Ireland. That's what I saw out when I was at about the 70k mark. I found a beautiful stretch when I was completely alone by a lake. Birds were tweeting and singing. And then I thought, is that a, if you mind my life, is that a fucking furze bush? Are you serious? <laughs> the, the proper, like, you know, spiky gorse. Um, and was it in bloom? Did it have the, the smell? It wasn't the... in bloom. It wasn't okay, in bloom, okay, unfortunately. You d- yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. You didn't get the, um, is it a, uh, what's it, a coconut type smell of the yellow, um, sweet coconut? Which would have just transported me completely back. To yeah. home in Kilparity or something like that, yeah. but it wasn't yeah. far. It was good. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, that was a much more intelligent, uh, interesting conversation than I expected. Yeah, it was all right, I suppose. <laughs> and that's from me, not you. I knew well, you'd well, be all right. <laughs> what were you expecting? <laughs> I'm only joking. No, I had no idea how it was going to go. Um, we'd been talking about this for a while. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Good to catch up. Yeah. No, no, really good. And really fascinating. Um yeah, really interesting. It's um I'm like Jeepers, I'd like to get to know you. <laughs> yeah, and the one are linking it back to housing again and sustainable development goals is set targets for all countries, you know, delivering and ensuring improved access to water and sanitation. What are Ireland's statistics? You or know, access to Ar- access to improved water and sanitation. Yeah, I wouldn't have those to hand, but I'll have to do my research for the next one. It'd be, it'd be worth looking at, and the reported figures from the CSO are 99%. Yeah. What percentage of the population is being pushed into homelessness? Oh, that's that's a difficult one. Um, so, but, but again, even... I, I would question... Yeah, you'd have to validate, you know, so... 
I would yeah. not be surprised. Improved water and sanitation means there's no fecal or chemical contaminants in it. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of community or household supplies which would have contamination. Yeah. So, again, if we were to push hard on the Irish government, those that level of 99% is probably not robust. Yeah. Overestimate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely think so. And I remember my work in Dolphin House where the issues of water, wastewater, sewage, and um, the question of, you know, how whether it's connected into the, the actual drinking water system. But should we know? We've constant non, you know, there's drinking water notices all around, you know, in different parts of the country, you know, during the year where certain towns and entire towns and villages and can't drink the water. Um, so, you know, we know that, the, that 99% absolutely is, is not the case. That sounds like episode two. It does sound like episode Compare two. Compare reforms and how water services are delivered here and the mix of public-private processes to try and achieve that, but also the failure to really consider water and sanitation as a foundational pillar for development. Yeah. Um, there you go. Yeah. Next Good time. man. Good man. Listen, great to chat to you. And uh, as always, miss you loads. Miss you too. <laughs> great to connect. Great to connect. Listen, Decky, thanks Baron. so much. Yeah, yeah we'll do. We'll do. Uh, that's the brother there living in Australia and a, a, a really, really lovely chat. And um, yeah, thanks, Decky, for that. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you found some interesting things. Definitely really interesting around um, climate, indigenous communities. And I think the question of water and emigration, and which we will come back to. Definitely, Decky. I want to talk about that that emigration experience. Um, but yeah, listeners, in terms of thanks so much, everyone, please, if you can, share the podcast around. Let others know you're listening. Um, as you said, it, it's a real resource for people. And thank you so much to uh, lots and lots of people who have been getting in touch with me around the when I was on the Late Late and saying well done and all that. I really appreciate it. And uh, fuck the begrudgers. And <laughs> yeah, we will uh, remind you if you can sign the uh, petition on the eviction ban, share it around and we will keep the push on that and talk to you all very, very soon. 